Well, good morning. Hope you guys had an amazing Thanksgiving. We're going to expand on that today a little bit. Uh, well, listen, while you're getting in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 16, I'll give you a minute to find that because that's probably not what your Bible flops open to. It's right after a lot of genealogies and a lot of historical review that you probably fast forward that part of the movie. But First Chronicles 16 is where we'll be today. All right, well, there's a lot of things for us to be thankful for. And you'll notice if you've got an outline, I hope you do. And I hope you've got something to write with as well. Because at the end of this message, we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit of an inventory. A gratitude inventory at the end of the message. And then we're going to, Keith and the worship team are going to come back up and help us to be thankful before the presence of God. But there are many things that could be on that gratitude inventory. Uh, one of them would be an announcement that I'm not full of thanksgiving to make. Uh, that this morning is Mike and Holly Abbots and their family, Lucy and Anna, their last Sunday with us. Where are you guys? There they are right there. Uh, last Sunday with us, they are moving. The Lord has opened the door for them to be in Nashville. And so they're moving uh, here in the next few weeks. And so this is their last Sunday with us. They have been with us decades. How long has it been since you guys, you were little children, you were? Oh my gosh, 32 years. For Holly at least. Uh, and they have, they have been friends. They have served our church. They have been partners in ministry. They have helped us advance the gospel. They have helped us love people. They have built bridges into many people's lives and helped us build community here. It's one thing to be a church that gathers to hear messages. It's another thing to be a church that builds community. And these guys have helped us build community. We hate everything about this moment. Just want you to know that. And uh, the fact that, Mike, you went along with this is seriously a question about your leadership. But anyway, um, we love you guys. We're going to miss you unbelievably. Um, but if you guys need a place to stay in Nashville, um, there's, there's some new friends there that can put you up for a season. All right. Well, I know we all stopped and recognized Thanksgiving Day on Thursday. It's kind of funny to explain that to your kids because they try to figure out what date it's on. If they're young enough, it's like, well, what date is it on? Well, it's not really on a date. It's on the last Thursday in November. And it's like, wait, so it moves around? It's like, yeah, yeah. All right, so I don't know if you knew, but, but this past Thanksgiving was the 400-year anniversary of what was supposed to be the first Thanksgiving back pilgrims involved in Plymouth back in 1621. Uh, I noticed that because it's, it's kind of come under some controversy now. Everything's controversial, isn't it? Even Thanksgiving is controversial now. Well, it's controversial. So let me fast forward from 1621 to another moment in Thanksgiving history, because we're going to go back a couple of thousand years to a moment in Thanksgiving history. But this moment comes in 1863, when Thanksgiving became an official holiday, if you will, and celebration in the United States. And I could not help but be affected by Abraham Lincoln's proclamation on Thanksgiving Day, proclaiming that day to be observed. And the way in which he approached, this guy would not get away with this today, but the way he approached it, the words he used were provoking to me in terms of what we're going to talk about today. Let's listen to this proclamation. He says, the year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. This is 1863, by the way. So they are in the middle of a civil war. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften the heart, which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of almighty God. And he's cites in a couple of paragraphs several blessings that have come, even in the midst of all the, the turmoil that was in their day. Then he says, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. 
it has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do, therefore, invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. That was the President of the United States. I don't know if you can imagine that kind of a statement coming today. I can't. Yes. Very sad, but interesting to notice the condition that human beings are challenged with. We are challenged with remembering. We are challenged with paying attention to the things that are really, really, really valuable and stopping what we're doing and turning heavenward and acknowledging those things. That's what Abraham Lincoln noticed in his day. Uh, that's what we're going to notice in this passage as we look into First Chronicles 16. Now to catch up where you are in First Chronicles, First Chronicles is is the representation of the history of the nation of Israel. So it's written after they come back from exile. Remember, the nation of Israel goes off into exile. They come back into the land, and there is a representation of hey, remember where we came from, remember our story. Remember God's dealings and how we got to where we are. So that's what First Chronicles and Second Chronicles is trying to set before God's people. Chapter 16 in particular is a, a turning point in the history of the nation. It's the point in which King David is going to begin to lead the nation. And he's going to interact. He's going to, if you will, he's going to inherit a bad economy. Right? If he's the president of the United States, the economy of the nation of Israel spiritually is in a really, really bad place. Things of God have been neglected. If you remember some of the stories going before this moment, right? you've got the great story, the, the Ichabod story right? precedes this day. The Ichabod story was the story in which the, the glory of God had departed from the temple and the ark had been captured by the Philistines. And the place that God had intended to be the most special place on earth where his presence would show up and there would be a people group, unlike any other people group in the world, they would be stewards of the presence of God and God would actually show up among them and manifest himself above the mercy seat. That seat is gone. That ark is nowhere to be found anymore. The glory hath departed. And shortly after that, Saul is going to become king. And you won't catch this unless you read carefully. It will be decades before the ark is returned to its place of prominence. Decades are going to go by and no one's going to miss anything. And David is going to step in to lead. You think, David, what's your program, man? What's the thing that you're most about? Well, his leadership is, is exceptional in this moment. First Chronicles 13 is where we back up a little bit into David's interaction with this moment. It says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader, and David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have, that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. You read back, past that a little too quickly. We did not seek the ark in the days of Saul. We did not seek. We did not prioritize. We did not pursue the prominence of the ark and what it meant to us all the days of Saul. Now, can you remember something? Because this is a shocking, horrifying statement. When one remembers that God summoned the people to himself at Mount Sinai. He reached into Egypt and he grabbed his nation out of, Mount Sinai, out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai and said, you're going to be a special people on all the earth. And he kept them there for a year. And we get Exodus and we get Numbers and Leviticus with all the ceremony put in place. 
where God had put a place on planet earth where he said of all the places in the world, I dwell everywhere, but I'm going to dwell here a little bit differently. I'm going to manifest my presence among you, but that's not a casual thing. If you're going to get around my presence, you're going to have to be aware of some things about what it means to be near to me. And this whole tabernacle system comes into play and God invents these steps toward God, these sense of sacrifice because man needs to understand his own condition that he doesn't come flippantly before the presence of a holy God. He's got sin issues. So there's all this sacrificing that's going to take place so that man can come near to God and God promises that he will dwell on the earth with this little group of people. What's going to make you guys different is that I'm among you. And I'm among you uniquely. That's their charter statement. That's what defines them as a people. How do you have that as a charter statement? And it's been decades since anybody's even put eyes on the ark. It's in some closet at some guy's house in Kiriath Jerum after the Philistines finally didn't want it anymore because it was freaking them out. They sent it back to Israel. This is the great moment of downfall for a people who have a definition for why they exist. They have misplaced their identity. And one might wonder, why? What, what was happening with them that the identity God had given them had so been misplaced. I don't know if you could say anything really, really elaborate besides they were just doing life. They were just doing life. You know, life for everybody, no matter what time frame you live in, it's got other stuff besides God in it. Have you figured that out? There's other stuff besides God in this world. There's other priorities. There's lots of needs. There's conflicts and there's wars and they had their share of them. There were things going on. The culture had trends in it back then. I mean, you couldn't follow it on Facebook, but they had trends. They had things happening in the world that were intriguing. They had wars and rumors of wars. You know, there's always been an, an Egypt out there. There's always been a Philistines out there. There's always been a Syria out there that was going to infringe on the borders of God's people and threaten them. They always had those things. But there was an identity for them that was never, ever, ever to be lost. But yet it was lost. And it was lost in the noise of their own world. And you know that that's, that's always a threat to the people of God. We live in a noisy world too, don't we? There's lots of agenda items out there. There's lots of things that somebody is, is washing up to the shoreline of your life and saying, hey, are you paying attention to this? Hey, did you know this is going on? What about those people who act like this? Hey, where do you stand on this issue? And what about... How do you feel about that? Did you see the news about this the other day? Where are you on that? And all this stuff is made to feel like this is so, so important. And to all of us who are still stuck in the land, maybe you're watching. I don't mean to knock anybody who's watching. Thank you for watching. But for all of us who are stuck in the land of masks and no masks and vaccines and no vaccines, you're stuck there. Where's your identity? Do you know where the ark is? Have you seen the presence of God lately? That's what David's concerned about. I'm concerned about the presence of God among us. So when David sets his plan in place and he's the new king, his order of priorities are all about one thing, the presence of God among us. He goes to war with his neighbors, says, I need to get you guys out of the land so that we can, we can live unto God the way we're called to. I need to restore Jerusalem because that's the centerpiece of what God is doing here. I need to bring the ark back. Those are his priorities. Listen, I know there's a lot of priorities in our land. There were priorities in their land. That's why for decades, and I'm not sure we're not living in a country where for decades the presence of God has lost interest for even the church. I mean, come on, let's be honest. The last two years, people can get much more animated. I'm going to talk to you today about Thanksgiving is an animated thing. It's noisy. It's on the inside. It's overflowing. You're a little bit obnoxious, quite honestly. If you're, th- if you're giving thanks the way the Bible calls on us to give thanks, you're a little over the top. But I, quite honestly, I've seen more people over the top over non-important issues. They get jazzed up. They're all lit up. All right, next time you see somebody freak out over a mask or a vaccine, just ask them, hey, do you know where the ark is? Just ask them that question. 
be a clarifying moment. All right, so here's what David does. He gathers the people back together. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, here's his program. Here's how we start this restoration. Here's how we move back toward the presence of God. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 1. They brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And skip to verse 7. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So 1863, Abraham Lincoln has a wise idea. This is like 1050 BC. King David is way ahead of you. Let's have a day of thanksgiving. This is how we move toward the presence of God. We do so by cultivating thanksgiving in our hearts. Now, there's a few things here that get highlighted. I'm going to live in that one, but there's burnt offerings that are here. Burnt offerings were common in scripture. They, they were a mindfulness that to come before God, there's a problem. That's what burnt offerings told you. You don't just make your way before God. You bring an offering that you put your hands on and you associate your guilt with that offering and you burn it completely. It's an all-consumed offering before God. And by doing so, you are acknowledging your place as a fallen creature before a perfect righteous God. But then they also were allowed to bring peace offerings. This was a little different. This was stating that you, by the covenant God made with you, are at peace with God. And you enjoy fellowship with him. So there was a reminder, right? The Bible does both of these things. Reminds us of our condition and our need for God and how sin has touched our lives. But it also reminds us that God has granted us to be in fellowship with him. And we have peace with God. David blesses the people. And then David appoints a worship team. Now, I was going to make all the worship team members stand up for a moment. But I'm not going to do that to you. But I do want you to sit up and take special, special notes. Because what is described here, what we're about to describe here is for all of us, but your responsibility among us is to lead us into these things. So listen, I know, you know, what you got up here is an interesting cast of characters because they're musicians. For those of us who think with the other side of our brain, we love you guys, but you just don't get it in a lot of ways. And we don't get it in a lot of ways. And you guys get appointed to lead us. In worshiping God. There's something about music, and I'm going to make that point today. But there's something about musicians. There's something about the way you're wired. There's something about what God has made you capable of that sits in this category uniquely. So you have a responsibility. Can I just tell you, when you read this carefully, and I hope you'll take it home. I hope you'll just read through these three words and memorize their definitions, if you will. And when you come, that you recognize you are doing something much more than playing an instrument. Although you are playing an instrument. And you should play it extremely well for the glory of God. But you're doing something among us much deeper than that. So the worship team was to do three things. And I'm really just going to read these. These words are so descriptive in the original language. You are called to invoke to thank and to praise the Lord. Let me just take these words apart because they're, they're, they're rich. That word invoke, it's the Hebrew word zaher. It's a verb meaning to remember, to mention, to, to recall, to think about, to think on. If you have a King James Bible, it got translated to record. Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to quote from him in a moment. He, he had a message called the recorder's. So there was a sense among us would be people who were writing down, who were drawing our attention to, who were making notes of things about God. It means to acknowledge and to make known. The basic meaning, listen to this carefully. The basic meaning indicates a process 
of mentioning or recalling either silently, verbally, or by means of a memorial sign or symbol. Right? The Old Testament is full of symbols. It's full of something that you just stare at that it tells a story. The whole tabernacle and the way it's set up, it's telling a story about God. It's revealing things about God. The names of God reveal things. The, the meal we just ate reveals things. They're symbols. They're, they're this invoking. And they're ceremonial. Now listen, as, as Protestants, and even, even worse than that, as charismatic Protestants, ceremony is like a curse word to us, isn't it? Like ceremony, oh my gosh, ceremony. I mean, literally, but I, I grew up going to church and going through ceremonies. Week in and week out, that meant nothing to me. They were empty, go in a building, chant some words, say some things in response. It, quite honestly, it wasn't until I got saved. I, the, the spirit of God dwelled in me that I, I showed up in the same exact setting. And it's like, all of a sudden I heard everything I was saying. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's what I've been saying all these years. That's all right. It's like, I mean that now. I didn't mean it before, but I mean it now. And there's this sense that you would do the same thing. It was like a, a ritual installed. And so, you know, I think when we come to a little bit more spirit led kind of a component, Sometimes we, we just want to be in the moment with God. We just want God to just say what's next, so to speak. But can we just not jettison all ceremony? Because there are ceremonies in Scripture, like the one we just did with remembering God's presence among us through the celebration of communion together that is intended to, to be a process. It's intended to have signs or symbols. And, and I can tell you this, if you struggle to have a prayer life, this might be part of the reason why. Because you don't have enough signs and symbols to help you get into a prayer closet with God and to experience his nearness. So this is a good word. And this is what we're called into. This is what David does. He appoints folks that are going to help us remember and record and acknowledge and stare at and move closer to. And then he uses the word to praise. It's the word hallel. It's a verb meaning to praise, to commend, to boast, to shine. All right, now that's an interesting thing. I don't know what that sounds like. What do you think that's going to sound like when somebody is shining something? It's boasting about something. Well, if you, if you want a current reference point, it's the way commentators, if you watch any of the football games this weekend, just listen to the commentators if you watch a game that Tom Brady is playing in. You will hear commentators boast and shine. Because they're going to talk about there's no one like him. He's the greatest. He's the greatest of all time. He's this, he's that. And they're just going to go on. And they're, just going to be, they're just going to be amazed. Just like talking about Michael Jordan, right? It's like, you're just amazed. This person is alone. They're in their own category. There is, wow. Did you see? Did you see? Let me show you the highlight from the other night. Did you see this? That's boasting and shining. That's what that looks like. So for those of you, you know, who are not musicians, who have a hard time doing that, those of us who are very logical in our thinking, this is actually inviting us into something that's a little bit loose and a little bit expressive. It's got a little bit of heat to it, a little bit of passion to it. So you're not boasting and shining when you're just kind of like blah and presenting something as a matter of facts. And, no, the boasting and shining has got a little bit more life to it. It's where it most often means praise and is associated with the ministry of the Levites who praise God morning and evening. All creation, however, is urged to join in and various instruments were used to increase the praise to God. Did you hear that? Various instruments were used to increase the praise to God. That's written by a complete word study Bible dictionary, right? So this is, this is not a musician. This is a egghead who's letting us know that what's intended in this moment is that when we crank up the music, we're, we're intended to be engaged a little bit differently. And these instruments are actually doing something to us in that moment. Some of y'all are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where are you going with this, Keith? Um, I'm just going where the Bible goes with this. You'll notice that there's something that God did, that there's certain aspects of this moment before the presence of God that need musical instruments. And they need us to sing and not just to listen 
and not just to speak. They need us to sing because there's something different going on in this moment. God is intending. Listen, you are, you are body, soul, spirit. You are emotion and mind. You are thinking and you are feeling. That's who you are. Somebody comes along in the Christian history and, and turns the feeling component into this bad thing. We retain thinking because we want to teach. We want to make the Bible clear. But we, make, we associate feelings with stuff that's, that's bad. And you know what they're doing with this music stuff, right? I mean, they're just working up your feelings. Um, well, can I say yes? That's exactly what music is doing. Ever watch a movie uh, without a soundtrack? It's almost confusing to follow because, you know, when the, when the scene starts to change and the creepy music comes, you know what to prepare for, don't you? It's like, you know, okay, all right, in this moment, I'm about to be weirded out by something, right? Yeah, that's right. Some of y'all will do this in that moment. The music told you to do this, didn't it? It's informing you. There are, there's musical moments that are pulling on different dimensions of you. There's intensity. There's trumpets. There's blasts because this is big. This is voluminous. This is, this is impressive. And it's got a feel to it. You know, it's got the, the start of the football game this afternoon. It's going gonna, it's gonna to start with this triumphant thing. You're going to be ready for a ball game, baby. You're not going to be ready to break out the Kleenex. You know, it's like. <laughs> but then let the, well, of course, unless the Saints are playing. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, so, but if you break out violins uh, immediately, you know, violins just make you contemplative. They make you think about everything that's gone wrong in your life. Uh, your tears begin to flow immediately. Is, is that wrong? I don't think so. I think it's tapping into in the same way in, in which teaching engages our intellect and engages our thought processes. I think there's a musical element that we are engaged. The full portion of who we are gets engaged and our emotions get heightened in that moment. I think God's very interested in that. We are emotional beings. You know, some of the folks who are like deadpan in here, you can go to another setting and get pretty excited, right? You can get pumped up with music, man. You, you can get some pump going on. Uh, God's not against that. That's not a problem, right? Even John Piper says music is one way of raising and carrying the heart's exaltation. So all you musicians out there, thank you for helping us carry our hearts before God in a way that he is pleased let me give you one more definition for that word halals and take some of y'all off the leash. It means to shine, hence to make a show, to boast, and thus to be clamorously foolish, to rave causatively, to celebrate. That's what that word means. And that's what David said. Hey, let's do that. Let's gather together with the ark of God. Let's do that before God. And the last word he used is to thank or the word thanksgiving. It's the word yada. It's a verb meaning to acknowledge, to praise, to give thanks. I'm going to put the emphasis on the word give in there. To confess, to cast. Right, this word is used that way. The essential meaning is an act of acknowledging what is right about God in praising and thanksgiving. It's an act of acknowledging. It is giving of thanks. It is used to cast something somewhere. So this is the expressive element. Last week we talked about grace realized. Hey, you can realize grace quietly, contemplatively, but gratitude is to be expressed. Gratitude is to come flying out of us and go somewhere else. Definition goes on and says, this rightful heavenward acknowledgement is structured in corporate worship. Yet it's also part of personal lament and deliverance. Several uses of yada evidence an essence of motion or action as something given, intensively referring twice to to cast or throw something. So there is this sense, thanksgiving, right? There is this attitude that gets in us that feels like gratitude. We are so thankful, but we're not done. Because if it doesn't get given, if it doesn't get thrown from us to another location, we have not become guilty of thanksgiving. I don't know who it was that said years ago, said gratitude expressed is not gratitude. That's right. Oh, but it feels like gratitude. I was so thankful. I started to write you a note. I started to let you know. I was so thankful. Okay, technically you weren't. 
technically you were on your way to being thankful because until it gets expressed, until it, until it leaves you, until it gets transferred, it's not thanksgiving. It's the giving part that God is highlighting in this passage. And, and notice something. Remember the, the story that, that Jesus told about the 10 lepers? Let me read it to you real quick. Luke chapter 17. Jesus encountered these, these lepers who, whose lives, I won't go into details. If you had leprosy in this day, your life was ruined. Social distancing, that's how you lived your life. But it wasn't six feet. It was like outside the city. You had to go live and dwell somewhere else. Every relationship in your life was over. Every job you had was done. It was a horrible existence. And Jesus one day heals 10 lepers in their horrible condition. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his feet, on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? All right, now when you read that, if you just go read the story of the 10 lepers, that shocking moment for Jesus sticks out for me more than anything else about the story. It's like, that's the centerpiece of the story. It's the shock that the God of the universe interrupted your misery. He stepped into what had redefined your life and had taken every ounce of joy from you and he gave you back your life. And only one interrupted whatever they were going to do next and went back to Jesus and gave him, transferred to him their gratitude. That's what Jesus is shocked with. I find it interesting that that's where David starts his reform. He starts with the people that he knows. Guys, we have a problem remembering. That's why the ark has been in some guy's garage for decades. And the Philistines took it in the first place. Because we have a problem remembering and being thankful to God. So let's start there. And that's what he starts in his reform. I think I put a note in your outline. If we understood the soul-protecting strategic importance of Thanksgiving, we might make an even bigger deal out of that holiday. Remember the, the hymn writer, Robert Robinson, wrote the hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So there's something about the world that we live in that God interacts with us and tells us, it will take your heart from me. And David's so wise, he says, well, you know, the first thing to engender in a heart that wants the presence of God is gratitude is an awareness of something that gives birth to thankfulness. And that's what he does. So in, in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8, and I, I'm going to encourage you to do this because I'm going to read through about four verses here. and I'm going to leave the rest of, of David's song for you to go back and read. This is a great ceremonial song. If you're saying, hey, you know, it would be really helpful for me is from, to take this message today and to realize at, on a regular basis, I need to be engendering gratitude in my heart, right? And I do that by realizing grace, remembering who God is, what he's done, and allowing that to bubble over into giving and transferring thanks to God. If you need some help in that category, David's song here in First Chronicles 16 is extremely helpful. Look at the categories he gives you and, and just think about each one. Just ponder each one. But we're just going to do that quickly through a couple of these verses. I'm going to bring the worship team back up in just a moment. Here's this song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Right? Give Thanks. It's the word yada. It's a transfer. It is you and I not being in a setting like this and not transferring anything. This is why the loudest moment in, in, the, in the service should be what we do when we first come in here. 
Because it is a transfer. If we're not transferring anything, we're not worshiping. We're in the building. It, it counts for attendance sake. It just doesn't count for worship sake. Oh, David said, oh, give thanks to God. Transfer to him a sense of overwhelming gratitude for who he is and what he's been to us in our lives. Sing, verse 9, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Transfer thanks. Sing to God. Sing to God. Now listen, I've told this story before. When I got saved, I was a a young teenage guy. Cool guys didn't sing. That just was a rule. Everybody knew it. So I get saved and I'm kind of like brushing up against churches for the first few years, not really in one. When I come in, some of them, it's like they sing. They're singing in here. I'm not singing. I'm cool. I'm not going to sing. That's like, I don't know what it is, but it's not for cool guys. You, you just stand there. Maybe you mouth a few things, but you don't get carried away. It's like, because you don't want everybody to know you're kind of not into that. This is King David. The dude would beat me in a fight. Okay. Sing. To God, sing to him. Have something in you that needs a song to convey it to God. It needs a beat. It needs tempo. It needs a mood to it. You know, the Bible sometimes is going to make you cry. And the music is going to make you cry along with it. It's helping you to cry. That's a sad song. Yes. And it's intended to be a sad song. That's a celebratory song. Yes. It's intended to celebrate. That's a driven go to war song. Yes. That's in the Bible. And music is helping us to accomplish that. Can I say what a massive mistake we're making as human beings who have, who have developed some kind of a theology that in here we're medieval, quiet, reserved. But let me go to a concert or a football game. And the same person has like got a lighter going and like, yeah, you remember this song, man? <laughs> we were like in the back of that station wagon and oh man, you <laughs> can we remember something else when we come in here and light a lighter for God and go, man, do you remember what God, whoo, and be affected by what God is done? Listen, we have the ability to remember things. Yeah. And to celebrate them when we do. Don't reserve your exuberance for, you know, the Saints finally scoring a touchdown. Finally. Uh, That could be big whenever it starts to happen again. Uh, We are capable of stuff that we somehow have made off limits for us. You understand how boring this setting gets when people stop being the people God's wired us to be? Oh, but that could get really weird. Can I tell you in the courts of heaven, there's nothing weirder than silence. Nothing. Tameness before God. Can I tell you people wet their pants? They get down on the ground. They freak out. They want to run from God or they want to scream in amazement and worship. But they're not calm and disengaged. That's the one thing they're not. That's weird. The stuff you think, well, I know a church across town that when they do stuff, they're like, mm, it's like really weird. Can I tell you, if you're, if you're subdued, you are weirder than that. Before, before the presence of God. You and I, we got wiring. We got abilities. You think God didn't intend any of that stuff to be used in these settings? We can think. We can express. We can experience emotion. We can be intense. We can be contemplative. God gave us all these abilities. And he intends us, obviously, to use them. David's stirring them up. Verse 10, he says, glory in his holy name. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. That word glory, it's it's the word hallel that we just explored. It's the word for boasting. It's the word for shining. It's the word for making a big deal out of. You know, think Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah uses this word in this famous passage that we're familiar with. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man hallel in his wisdom. That's the word. Let him not boast and shine and celebrate, make a big deal out of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But if you're going to do some boasting, if you're going to crank up this sense of, wow, look at that. 
Let's boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. So I don't know what, you know, guys, I don't know what your attitude is like when it comes to, you know, we're smart and we're going to have a conversation and we're going to give off that smartness. We're going to boast in our education and what we know, or maybe it's our might. Boasting in what we can accomplish, boasting is something about us, our riches. We talk about this stuff. We talk about it like it matters. And God says, hey, why don't, you, why don't you pick that up, your ability to do that, and why don't you bring it over here? And why don't you let it be in the room with me? And why don't you express that toward me? Let your hearts venture into rejoicing. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. That word means to brighten up, to cheer, to be Glad. John Piper, in his message, A Blaze for His Beauty, says this. When 1 Peter 3.18 says, He died once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It doesn't mean that he might bring our hearts to God to be bored, bring our hearts to God to be moderately interested, bring our hearts to God to be analyzed or simply known. This is not what he means. He means bring your heart to God to be shaped by white, hot affection for God. Your heart hasn't arrived fully at the blood-bought destiny of it until it is passionate for God, loving God, delighting in God, satisfied with God, treasuring God above all things. That's the end of the gospel and the final shape of the gospel-shaped heart. God is looking for hearts that have affection for him, delight in him, energy toward him, expressiveness toward him. That's what God's after. See, this, this is the building materials that David started with in restoring the ark to the people of God. That which had been lost, the pursuit of the presence of God which had been lost. And then he's going to use this word, remember, a lot. Remember. He says, seek the Lord and his strength, verse 11. Seek his presence continually. That's what David was about. He was a man after the presence of God. Verse 12, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Let me ask the worship team, Keith, if you guys could go ahead and come back up. That word remember. It's the word zaher. It means to acknowledge, to record, to write some things down, to create a ceremony, if you will, that helps you remember particular things about God and what God has done. But wasn't it interesting? I don't know if you caught this from Abraham Lincoln. He highlighted the fact that as human beings, we just have this ability to not be mindful of what God has done. To just ignore it, to overlook it, to forget, perhaps. Let me read this last quote to you while the band's getting in place. Charles Spurgeon preached a message out of 1 Corinthians 16 titled, The Recorders. He said this in a way that only Charles Spurgeon can. He said, there was also a third company set apart for somewhat extraordinary work. Namely, as the text tells us, to record They were to take notes of what God had done and was doing to bring to remembrance. I do not find fault with short memories, but with memories which are treacherous towards divine things. What I complain of is that memory may be very strong concerning self-interest, grievances and trials, yet towards God's mercies, it may be very weak. What a grasp memory has for things that never ought to have crossed the mind at all, and which, though they have crossed the mind, ought to be forgotten. Well said an old divine, quote, man's memory is a pond in which all the fish die and all the frogs live. I'm sure it is so. The bad remains, but the good, aha, how you have to charge and constrain yourself to remember a tenth of it. The fall has given a sad bias to memory, like a strainer. It lets the good liquor run through and only retains the dregs. Again, memory towards God's mercy has been very much impaired by neglect. Any part of the body left unused will lose power. And any faculty of the mind which is never exercised will gradually become weak. 
You may have very powerful memories, as I said before, towards earthly things, but I will venture to say that some of you have never sought to remember the mercies of the Lord. No, you have not seen them to be God's mercies. It has never occurred to you to try and remember what God has done for you. I would not bring a harsh impeachment, but I suggest the question. Have you not lived as if there were no God? As if the mercies of every day were indeed of your own procuring? As if you had no indebtedness to God and were under no obligation to be grateful to him? I do not wonder that your memory towards divine things is weak for you've never exercised it. Never thought of exercising it. And consequently, my friend, if ever you are to learn to praise the Lord, you will have need of great help in the work. For your memory will not furnish you with materials. It has no store of good things with which to feed your devotion. You have kept its chambers empty by neglect. Grace or gratitude does not get expressed where grace has not been realized. And that's what brings us to this moment right now. Thanksgiving, what an amazing holiday. I think it's, I think it's one of the most godly holidays available to man because it is that stepping point toward the presence of God that begins with remembering. Remembering who God is and what God has done. So here's what I'd like for us to do. I just want to take a few minutes before the band starts to lead us in song. I want you to take out your notes on the back page there. There's a place for you to create a little bit of an inventory. So don't sit this part out because you really can't sing and you really can't celebrate and you really can't be full of gratitude if you don't have things to be grateful for. And if those things aren't floating to the surface in your heart. I just want to pray for us for a moment. Just let you sense the Lord and let him lead you to write down a few things and let him steer you in that moment. Father, help us. Lord, maybe we're not one of the nine lepers who are so busy and so eager to do our lives that We just overlook how massive your grace has been toward our lives. You have given our lives back to us. And we are busy living those lives now. God, would you give us a moment right now where we just pause. We ponder grace that has found us and how it is in our lives. But give us thoughts to write down how you have changed our leprous lives and you have given us a life of the spirit that we never could have imagined we could ever have. Help us, Lord.
Father, our desire as a people with an identity is to dwell in your presence. It's for you to be pleased to be in our settings among us, cherished and valued and worshiped and enjoyed, hearts that are glad. So, Father, this morning we follow the lead of King David in his heart to seek your presence, to begin with gratitude. Lord, to begin in a place where our hearts are engendered toward you because we have remembered who you are and what you've done for us. And we haven't been so quick and so hasty and so hurried to run back to our lives and to neglect the ark. Now, Lord, this morning, we want to pause and we want to transfer gratitude to you. And Lord, apparently you like singing. Apparently, we need singing. So, Lord, as we stand now and we are in your presence singing, Lord, would you fill our hearts with gratitude as we sing with all of our hearts and transfer our praise and our thanksgiving to you in Jesus' name. Let's stand up together.
history in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. God, that's what we desire each week. Lord, if we can't worship here, where else can we worship? Let it start here, God. Let it start here. Encourage hearts. Strengthen our minds against the darts of the enemy, against wickedness, Lord, against our flesh. Strengthen us and lead us further. Lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. Have a great week.